Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May, April, April the 9th, 2014, and this is episode 1330 of the Survival Podcast. What I'm going to do for you today is an evaluation of prepping. From the standpoint of a new person going, I don't know what to do. I've just figured out that everything ain't super and I need to figure out how to get my life in order and be prepared for disasters from the mundane to the insane. And at the same time, that same analysis can be used. I don't care if you've been doing this for 10 years. I'll bet you when we go through this today, you'll go, there's a hole, there's a hole. That's not really a hole, but it's a weak spot. That's a weak link in the chain in ways that you can constantly tweak and improve your preparedness. So I'm trying to do a show today that will reach out and help the very new person in the season prepper alike in improving their preparedness overall. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday. Five days a week. Sponsor of the day, number one today, HarvestEating.com. The illustrious chef Keith Snow that will teach you to make cooking a life skill. If you don't think cooking's a survival school, live on MREs for six months like I did at one time. And you will get a new appreciation for preparing food. Chef Keith will teach you how to cook seasonally and locally. So if you're doing homesteading or buying from a CSA, you can make best use of all that wonderful fresh food and how you can bring life into otherwise dull and boring meals. Hey, and if you're a prepper, you should be really working on the family unit. I, I really mean that. I think that strong families are a huge part of preparedness. Put good food on the table. Get the family around the table to talk about your life. That's a great way to build strong families. And when great food's there... It just makes something good even better. Check them out today, HarvestEating.com. Seasonings, books, videos, an awesome podcast, Chef Keith Snow. Next up today, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is absolutely my go-to source for everything herbal, unless it's growing in my backyard and I can go pick it. Um, when I have aches and pains, like I'm dealing with a, sh a sore shoulder right now, a shoulder injury from when I was 19 years old that is recurrent, Uh, instead of taking, you know, Tylenol, Advil, Moltrin, and other things that are like bad for my kidneys and liver and pancreas, I take their, either their, their, their pain formula or their anti-inflammatory formula or both. Um, the pain formula is made up with valerian. It's quite effective. I usually only take that in the evenings. And, uh, during the day, a lot of times I'll take their anti-inflammatory, which I think is a good thing to take almost as a maintenance thing, honestly, because it's mostly made up with turmeric which is an incredible herb that's very prevalent in, uh, in Indian cooking uh, and other cooking throughout the Middle East and in Asia. It's awesome stuff, and it really does work. And it just, you know, it's one of those things, if I remember to do it before I work really hard, um, the after effects are a lot less as well. And they have everything. If it's herbal and it's legal, you'll find it there. It's all either organically grown or wild-crafted. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Remember, they have a discount membership program. It's 50 bucks a year. 25% off everything they sell. But if you're a member of my support brigade, you get it for free for the first year and 25 bucks each additional year. And if you use the link 
in our show notes to go to westernbotanicals.com. And you don't want to join my membership program, but you want their discount membership program, if you're a member of this audience, they'll sell it to you half price. And at 25 bucks for 25% off everything you use, if you use a lot of herbals like I do, that membership pays for itself. But huge supporter of the show and the member support brigade have been with us four years now. Check them out, westernbotanicals.com. Our other MSB discounter of the day, the company we mentioned is not an official sponsor, but does give you guys a discount if you support my show through my program, CampingSurvival.com. Extensive, extensive stuff for your preps and just for your outdoor activities. Check them out. They give 5% off all orders of members of our support brigade. Okay, with that, let me remind you about the member support brigade. What the heck is that if you're new to the show? Well, it's how you can help support my show. 50 bucks a year, 18.3 cents an episode is what it comes out to if you do the math. Of course, the episodes are actually free. That's if you choose to support the show. But the way I put it is, if you're thinking about joining and you listen every day and you think to yourself, man, that's worth two dimes, consider joining. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active due to your prior service, or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, firefighters, all of you would qualify for a discount. Again, either active duty or prior service. Email me before you join. Put service discount in the subject line. One or two sentences telling me who you are and what you're doing, or if your prior service, what you did, and I'll send you back a discount code to save you money on the support brigade. Please do this before, not after you join my program. All right, with that, let's get into the year that was the episode. The year is 1330, because the episode is 1330. The Black Prince of England is born. Philippia, the king, the queen consort of England, gives birth to Edward of Woodstock. He will grow up to be a great military leader during the Hundred Years' War. He will also be known for cruelty in battle and earn the monkier the Black Prince. There is no evidence that he was called the Black Prince in his lifetime, but he did carry a black shield. He will die a year before his father, King Edward III, so he will never become king. His mother, Philippia, will be well-loved in England as a peacemaker, and, a queen, and Queen's College in Oxford will be named... In her honor. You know, one thing I always wonder when I hear that somebody was known for their cruelty in battle at this time is, was it possible to effectively wage war and fight against uh, another military enemy? Not go burn down somebody's house. But, you know, you have the forces of France and the forces of England meeting in battle with trained soldiers on both sides, with primitive weaponry. Is it possible in any way to have prosecuted a war like that with any success without being what we would call cruel. Now, a lot of times the cruelty is that the other side surrenders and he has everybody's heads cut off. I, I don't I don't know if that's the case with the Black Prince. But, you know, those are two different things. And I think sometimes in our long lens through history, we judge the actions of people, you know, 1,500 years ago on what we consider morality of the day today. And the reality is that it wasn't that way. So, I don't know. And I also think if you're in a war that lasts a hundred years, um, after a certain amount of time, uh, you start to behave in a non-human-like way. Anyway, um, my take on this, Alex has his take, but I'm going to give you my take today. It's, it's just a totally different thing. It's almost a pop culture thing. The Black Prince makes an appearance in a relatively modern movie. And in the movie, he is known as the Black Prince, though, as Alex said, there's no proof that he ever was during his time. And he turns out to be a pretty good guy in the movie. For those who've never seen the movie before, Heath Ledger starred in it. Not that one. 
It's called A Knight's Tale. And it's actually one of my favorite movies because the overriding message in it is that it doesn't matter what circumstances under which you were born, if you truly believe in your ability to achieve greatness and put the work into it and take the risks that go along with it, while there is no guarantee, you can in fact achieve more than you ever dreamed. And in the movie, they put it this way, a man can change his stars. It's been one of my favorite movies of all time. I never really thought about the Black Prince being an actual figure from history. Anyway, with that, let's uh, get into the main topic of today's show. And uh, we have some cool stuff to cover today. Again, I want to talk about prepping for the new and seasoned alike. And I want to talk about how this works out from a standpoint of this is more about how you think than what you do. I'm going to give you a whole list of things that can be done throughout this episode, but the thinking's much more important. The thinking leads you to making good decisions. The thinking leads you to proper analysis and a proper design of your prepping plan. Right? So when we design a preparedness plan for ourselves and our families, what we're actually doing, whether we get this or not, is we're setting things up for the comfort, safety, well-being, and survival of our families. I want to say that again. You're setting things up for the comfort, safety, well-being, and survival of your family. It takes on a different feeling if you look at it that way. It's not just, oh, I'm doing this in case the zombies come, right? That's, it's, it's, it's way too simplified to think, well, I'll just prepare for the end of the world as we know it, and then I'll be ready for everything else. Because it takes the emotion out of the equation, and it takes the thought out of the equation. And you also spend a lot of time preparing for zombies when what you should be preparing for is the lights go out for a week. So I want you to think about your family, both your immediate and extended that may rely on you. I want, to think, I want you to think about members of your community that you care about that might rely on you. I want you to not think lone wolf. I want you to think greater than yourself. Because frankly, if you can't think greater than yourself, not only can I not help you, I really don't want to. I really have no interest in assisting people who are only worried about themselves. I, I have no problem with people who do things in their own self-interest first, because whether we admit it or not, we all do. But once we see to our basic security and needs, we should be immediately looking out from ourselves. I will see to my needs to make sure that I can survive But the biggest reason I'll do that is part of my self-interest is the care of my loving wife. And if I'm dead, who's here to take care of her? So there's a blending there. But I'll also look beyond my wife to my son and his, his now girlfriend, maybe someday to be wife and, and their little, not their son, but her son that would become my adoptive, or I guess you would call step grandchild and his stepson. And I think about my neighbors across the street who I speak to every day. The neighbor behind me who did three freaking tours as a Navy corpsman with Marine Recon in Vietnam who's now in his late 70s. And I think there's no way in hell that if things go wrong, I'll let that guy be on his own. I think about the community and the family. The family first, the community second, myself in some ways first and in some ways last. There's an initial need, if I'm not here I can't help, But in the end, my greater concern is for those around me. Okay, And if you can get into that mindset, and then you can go back through 
you're thinking about the sa- the safety, comfort, well-being, and survival of your family. And if it's that important, then it's just not buying a bunch of shit and putting away. It it behooves you to analyze it a little bit. And this is where I think this show can help you whether you are a brand new prepper or a long-term prepper. It doesn't matter. Either way. It always starts with a primary risk analysis. What are the greatest risks that I face, that my family faces and my community faces? And in some ways, when you look at the environmental risks, it's pretty obvious based on where you live. If you live on the Gulf Coast of South Florida, there's these big swirly things that come around all the time. They're called hurricanes and tropical storms. They are probably your single greatest environmental risk. If you live in the Midwest, all the way down to Texas, and then east of the Mississippi River, all through the middle of the country, all the way up into Wisconsin, all in there, your your biggest environmental risk are probably supercell thunderstorms and little swirly things comparative to the hurricanes called tornadoes. There's flooding, and there's hail, and flooding's a huge risk too. Flooding kills more people than tornadoes every year. Flooding kills more people than any other environmental occurrence every year. Unless there's some kind of massive, ridiculous number of people lost to an earthquake or something like that in those exceptional years. But in general, the and it is the biggest weather killer every year. So there's an environmental risk assessment. If you live in a place with no trees, like the middle of the desert, you're probably not worried about forest fires. If you live in a flat space... With no surrounding hills, you're probably not worried about mudslides. Okay? So you make this basic analysis. You also say to yourself, what is the crime potential in my neighborhood? Where are the greatest threats of that? What is our financial health? And I'm not going to go through all of it because that's part of what we're going to do today. I just want to point out that what you need to do to be more prepared is think about not only what do I do if, but how do I prevent. You have to think like a fireman. The fire, the, the fire marshal is both concerned with putting out the building once it's on fire and preventing it from catching on fire in the first place. Or putting a fire suppression system in that will put out a potential fire very, very quickly before the firemen even get there. Where they're showing up and making sure everything's okay. Alright? And they think about that three-pronged approach. Prevention, suppression, and extermination, right? I don't think that's the right word. But you got fire suppression and putting fires out. So we need to think about our risks and that multi-pronged approach. Prevention first, mitigation second, right? And elimination third. That, that's probably the best way to look at that. So with that, then we have to start looking at, okay, we have all these different potential things that can go wrong. What is the commonality of disaster? And the reality is it always comes back To food, shelter, comfort items, security, health, sanitation. Ability to communicate, what it does to you financially, economically, how hard it is for you to recover and get back on your feet, and your ability to move around and get things done during those those occurrences. And that's it. That Every major disaster hits the majority or all of those things. Most minor disasters hit the majority or at least a good preponderance of those things. So everything we do, regardless of what our exact risks are, 
are built around those core components. And if we meet those, yes, you could be in your house, tornado could hit it, fly you away like Dorothy, except instead of flying away to Land of Oz, you end up impaled on a telephone pole and you're dead. And there's nothing you could have done in some instances. You can do everything right, and sometimes Mother Nature or the laws of probability are not on your side, and you end up dead. And at that problem, your, your problems individually are over, which is why it's important, as I said in the beginning, to think outside of yourself. Because for those who are still here, that have to deal with your loss and the things that have occurred and getting back on their feet without you, their problems have just begun. So we must think larger than ourselves. We also have to think really clearly about what I call the inverse relationship between impact scale and probability. Whenever you try to draw somebody back to, hey, look, your lights could go out for a week. They'll also say, oh, yeah, but if I'm ready for the zombies to come and then the New World Order to march and the blue helmets and all the black helicopters, and if I'm ready for that, then I'll be ready for that. So it's okay. Well, then you're going to do a bunch of stupid shit, okay? And you're going to have about a thousand holes in your prepping plan. A thousand holes. Okay? If you're worried because the New World Order is marching right now, they're coming to get you and your ch- If you're worried about that stupid shit, right, then you are not going to be prepared for the things that are going to happen in your life to either yourself, your family, and or those around you. Because the greatest probability of disaster has the least number of affected individuals. Yes, an asteroid striking the planet would be a bad day. Okay, it could be a little asteroid and it could create a bad day for part of the planet, or it could be a great big one and it could be an extinction level event. Or it could be somewhere in between. But the probability of that affecting you is much lower than the probability that a storm or some other occurrence will simply make the power in your house go and it will stay off for a week or two. Now, a week or two without power is either an inconvenience, a wholesale disaster for some people. Like if they rely on it for medical equipment, they keep somebody alive and can't figure out what to do. Or a minor inconvenience because you're somewhat prepared. Or pretty much, let me see what I can do to help other people because I don't care. And it's all about how prepared you are. But that occurrence is much more likely. You know what's, Now, if your power's out for two weeks, your neighbor's... And all the surrounding neighborhood are probably out for two weeks. You might be able to go a block or two and the power's back on. But if that's the case, you're probably not out for two weeks. Unless you live in kind of a remote tail end thing where you come last, like I used to. In most instances, if that many, if that, if you're out of power for two weeks, there's a lot of people without power for two weeks. So, that means it's a potential disaster that's likely to occur, could occur, but it's actually down the probability a little bit. What's more probable? Your spouse will come home and say, honey, I lost my job today. That's a disaster that hit 9 million people in 2008 to 2009. 9 million. But they're not like a mass casualty disaster. For each person, it was an individual disaster. It was an individual disaster. Because if the guy down the road from you that you don't know lost his job, you don't really know. You don't really care. You might care intrinsically as a human being because you don't like to see anybody suffer. But in general, your life goes on like nothing happened. That's an individual disaster. If your neighbor or good friend's wife got cancer 
It's a disaster that you felt, but it's really their problem more than yours. And if the guy down the street who you don't know's wife got cancer again, it doesn't affect your life at all. It's not that you intrinsically don't care for another human being, but you can't sit around every day and mope for the thousands of people that end up with life-altering illnesses or end up dead. Because you have to function. So those are individual disasters, and they are the most likely things to occur. Financially being wiped out, having your individual home destroyed, having your individual home damaged to the point where you can't live in it, having your individual home damaged to the point where there's parts of it that are still livable, parts of it aren't. Having somebody steal your car, having one of your kids run away. God, I hate to say that, but it's true. Having one of your kids killed in an accident or crippled in an accident. All of these things are more likely to happen to you as an individual than any of the major Hollywood disasters that people make movies about. Total collapse of the U.S. government? Possible. Probable? Probability low comparative to the probability that in the next 12 months you'll deal with one of these other things. There are certain things like economic stupidity that our government's doing that someday there will be a day of reckoning. But in the next 12 months, you are far more likely to need a transistor radio, a backup generator, 50 gallons of water, some stored food, and a way to keep your food cold than you are to have to worry about the entire economy collapsing into oblivion, not existing anymore. So it just makes sense, mathematically, that we take that inverse relationship and we build to it so that we have less holes in our preps for everything that's likely to happen. So to me, the way we then do that is we evaluate our weaknesses and we plug the holes. So the places that we evaluate, number one, and I, this really not a, there's not a priority list here. This is not an order that you do it in. These are just all the things that you need to look at. And as you look at them and you write down your weaknesses, the way you actually prioritize them is here's things we can just do in the next two weeks to make them go away. They don't cost us anything. They're just taking actions. These are things that are really cheap, so cheap that if we fix them, then it's like it didn't cost anything really because it was such a low cost. These are things that are really big risks that are going to have some costs associated with them, so they go next on the list. These are the things that have significant costs but are lower risk on the first list, and then you're done. And you've got a list of priorities. And that's why I don't put them in priority. Because you also might go, well, okay, he said water, but I got plenty of water already. So it would be low priority for you to increase your stores because you've got a couple hundred gallons stored. Okay, fine. Let's do the other things. But here's what I look at. Food. I want to make sure that I can feed myself and my family, and frankly, a few of my neighbors for at least a couple weeks. Let's get off the one-year storage plan for a minute. And just, just a few weeks, things that are easily stored, easily saved, and can be used to feed people that, we, that they want to eat. It's not just a case of MREs or a bucket of beans and rice. Okay, So I want to start out with that. And I'm going to go through the steps to take to do this in a minute. But I'm going to go through each one of these individually. Just, under, just talk about how to think about it. So that's what I'm thinking. I want my family and my neighbors to at least have a decent meal. That's it. Next thing, water. I want to make sure I can flush my toilets, assuming I can still flush my toilets. I want to make sure I can bathe, and I want to make sure I can cook. And I might not be able to take a half-hour warm shower in a disaster, 
but I want to make sure at least I can wash my face, my hands, wipe down my armpits, clean my feet, and, and feel decent as a human being and keep my health and sanitation up. So I need water to clean with, I need water to eliminate waste with, and I need water to cook with, and I need water to drink. Okay, Shelter. Shelter, I want to think about both what, what I would do if my home was damaged to fix it and make it livable. So things like tarps and things like that. All right, And I don't want to go too deep into it now. I'm just giving you the overview. I also want to think about where I would go if I couldn't stay here. What are my other alternative housing method uh, options? What family members can I make a reciprocal agreement with and things like that? I want to think about my shelter holistically. Okay, I want to think about energy. Energy is everything from gas to my car to the ability to make a light bulb come on to control the temperature of my food and my body. Remember, it's easier to cool yourself than it is a house. Fans, things like that. Okay. The next thing I want to think about is my security. I want to think about my security in two ways. Actually, three. Ongoing daily activity right now. While we're at, you know, condition greened. Everything is as good as it gets. There's still security risks. So I want to think about my home, my property, my family, where we go, what we do. Then I've got condition yellow. There's been a problem. Something's happened. Things are a little bit elevated, but we're not in a place where there's you know people looting and rioting and things like that. And I want to think condition red. Things have gone off the rails. People are running through the streets stealing shit. Uh, people are scared. People are hungry. People are freaking out. That's condition red. I want to think about security from those three layers. And I want to think mostly about what? Condition green. Because condition green can become condition red that fast for you as an individual. Condition green, everything's pretty super. Condition green, somebody's breaking in a house two and a half miles away and shooting a family to death to take what they have. It's still condition green for you. Again, you care, but if you don't, nobody ever tells you, it will never affect your life. The guy two and a half miles down the road that's not having his house broken into, when you are, it's condition green for him and everybody else around you. But it just became condition red for you. So I want to think about condition green because it always can become condition red individually. Condition green is the most important part of my security planning. The next thing I want to think about is communications. How will I communicate with my family, other members, authorities, response folks, my neighbors during a disaster? How will I get information as part of your communications? Health and sanitation. How will I make sure that a disaster that goes on a couple weeks doesn't result in an illness that goes on a lifetime or takes a life. You can look at what happens in places like Haiti during an earthquake with dysentery and diarrhea killing people more so than the earthquake and think, well, that's Haiti. You are a human being. Your body operates the same way. And in the absence of clean water, you will drink filthy water and you will kill yourself just as fast as those people do. Your first world reality can become a third world future in a second in the right circumstances. So we have to think about health and sanitation. Even if you're well fed, you've got good clean water, you're warm or cool, depending on the conditions that you need to take care of. And everything else, if you're eating, you're going to crap. And human waste, if not properly dealt with, creates its own environmental and, and health risks. So it's something we have to think about. 
Finance and economics, probably the biggest hole in the lives of most, pre most preppers is financial and economic preparedness. Four condition green. Yeah, if I took your job tomorrow, what would happen? If you've been listening a while, you might go, dude, we're past that speed bump a long time ago. Okay, you don't get another job for a year. How do you feel now? You both lose your jobs. So I want to bring it in perspective for the prepared and the unprepared alike. But I'll tell you what, there will be an economic system, period. There always has been, there always will be. Economic systems will shift and flux, and there'll be problems and solutions along the way. There'll be ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys, but there will be an economic system. And you're going to have to buy stuff. You're never going to be 100% self-sufficient. And you probably don't want to be. The, the human being is a community creature. We are designed to work cooperatively. We are designed to exchange things with each other. We have a mental intellect beyond that of any other creature that we know of on planet Earth. We are the only beings in the universe that we know of. Let's say there's no other potential life forms that can do this, but of all life that we know of, it's all confined to planet Earth. And none of that life has the ability to do one thing, negotiate. There are symbiotic and parasitic relationships in nature. There are no negotiated relationships in nature. In other words, if there's a symbiotic relationship between two entities in nature, it's a natural occurrence, it occurs, and it occurs the same way every time. And it doesn't change. Or if it changes, it changes through evolution. It doesn't change through choice. It doesn't change through bargaining. It doesn't change through communication. As far as we know, since there's almost no interspecies communication, as we understand it anyway, it's not possible. And there's no symbiotic relationships between members of the same species other than basic familial units and, and, and pack hunting and things like that. There's no negotiation. In a wolf pack, there's an alpha and there's an omega. There's a top dog and a bottom dog. And everybody falls into that hierarchy simply based on their strength and ability. No negotiation. In a human society, we can negotiate with each other. People in Florida can say we have lots of oranges. And people in Georgia can say we have lots of peaches. And people in Florida can go, well, that's nice. We have peaches too. We don't really need your peaches. And people in Georgia can figure out how to get oranges from Florida without stealing, without taking, without consent, without being non-voluntarist. We're the only beings that can do that. And that means we really need to think about the financial and economic components of our preparedness because it is that negotiation. So economic preparedness is not just being able to pay your bills. It's also being able to make those agreements during a time when a disaster is down, to be able to barter. And to be able to buy social capital, trust me, if the, if the lights aren't out forever, they're out for a week or two, and you help every person in your neighborhood, if they ever do go out long term, you have not made yourself a risk, you have made yourself a valued commodity. And you've bought massive social capital during that outage. We also think about recovery risks. This is something that almost no one that I know of, in fact, I'd say no one that I know of, period, I, do I ever hear in preparedness talk about recovery risks? What are the risks to you 
that a specific type of disaster will put you into a position where recovery takes way too long or is not possible. Well, that's why we prepare. No, it doesn't work that way. If your house burns down and you lose things in that fire that are not replaceable, all you have is money to replace them. How does that affect you emotionally and spiritually and your risk to recovery and putting your life back together? If you lose a loved one, like a child, what is the risk of recovery to your marriage? One of the number one causes of divorce, loss of a child. What are the recovery risks throughout your life? And then transportation. Talk a lot about bug out vehicles. What about just basically getting around? See, if we... Take that again. Food, water, shelter, energy, security, communications, health and sanitation, finance and economics, recovery risks, and transportation. And we build our plan for our lives based on those things. We become very, very resilient. And here's the stupid thing. It ain't that freaking hard. And 99% of Americans have never even thought about any of it. Their financial and economic plan is meeting with some ass clown, you know, consumer level financial advisor that doesn't know his ass from the hole in the ground about money, couldn't explain monetary creation to if you asked, thinks diversity is holding different paper assets, and has been trained to be a relationship salesperson. That's their, that's their financial and economic planning. And you know what? It's the one thing at least a large portion of our society does, and they do it that badly. Most Americans, their plan if the power goes off is they have a flashlight and batteries if they're lucky. Their plan if they can't get to the grocery store is, well, there's some food here, we'll be all right. Their plan for water is what? I never even, shelter is I have a house. Security is the police take care of that. This is all easy stuff. This is all stuff in six months. You might not be perfect with, but you can have an answer to every question I've already asked today. And it's not that hard. And it's not even that expensive. Let's start with getting off the ground, or if you found holes already, how to plug them. Let's start with food. Just start with copy canning in a deep pantry. Now, I say copy canning. A lot of us don't use a lot of canned goods. Copy canning is a generic term. It's like saying Xerox. It means any copy, right? It, it doesn't mean necessarily it's from a Xerox machine. So copy canning... It could apply to anything that can sit on the shelf and not go bad. Okay, Cans are just the most common form by which that's done. So all that means is if you use, and I'm not going to give you brands or items. If you use item X, and item X is storable, and you use it once or twice a week, or you use it once or twice a month, It's a staple, and you know if you have surplus of it, you're going to use it. So when you go to the store, and on your list it says to buy one, you buy two. And you take them and put them in your pantry, or your cupboard, or wherever you store your food. And the next time you go to the store to buy one, you buy two. You keep doing that until you have you know, two, three months worth of that one item. And then you do it with another item. And you can do three or four items simultaneously. Most of these items are not the most expensive thing we buy. And you start building that up. And you start looking at other things you can do that with. Start buying your beet in bulk. You'll save money. Cut it up yourself. Package it. Put it in a deep freezer. Can some of it. Break it up. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Just start doing that. Try to get to where if everything went and hit the fan and you just had to stay in your home for 30 days, you could provide a meal to one neighbor a week 
and feed your family and nobody would starve for 30 days. It's not that hard. And then just do it again to get to 60. 60 days, I'm not going to go past that with food today. I think it's wise to, but at least think about feeding a neighbor or two here and there throughout this scenario. You know, that can be cheap. That can be macaroni and cheese and a big casserole because you can cook and they can't. Here you go. Eat it before it gets cold because I don't think your microwave works. Right? So that basic component. Water. Store minimum 50 gallons. A lot of people are going, well, 50, that's not enough. Hey, listen, I said the word minimum. And this is how you store 50 gallons of water for next to nothing. You talk to people that either drink soda or the big heavy gauge plastic jugs of things like Arizona iced tea. If you don't, I don't drink either one of those, but my father-in-law loves that freaking Arizona iced tea. And the jugs from that stuff, the one gallon jugs are just I mean, I've dropped one on the, on the hard floor full of water, and it's held up. I don't advise it sooner or later you can blow the lid off and get a wet floor, but they're tough. We rinse them out, put a couple drops of bleach in them, rinse them out again. No, I don't put bleach in the water I store, the water. But just to clean out the, the bottle, we let them sit upside down and drain, and then we keep water in them. That is our drinking water. For me, 50 gallons work goes a long way because i got a lot of other things that are more advanced, Like I have pressure tanks. I have one, two, three, four pressure tanks. Then until I have another 200 gallons of water if my well shuts off before the faucet stops flowing. But that's an advanced thing. Don't worry about that. Just get at least 50 gallons stored that way. You can store a lot of it. If you have a chest freezer and it's not totally full, store a lot of it frozen. It becomes a thermal ice battery for you. It takes care of an energy need. The way it's a thermal ice battery is that it keeps the food in your freezer cold longer if the power goes out. So you have to worry about the freezer less. And when it eventually does need to come out of there and melt, you've got water. Ice is just water that hasn't become water yet. All right, So it counts as your water storage. I think 100 gallons is totally doable. And a lot of people want to get well, two big 55-gallon drums of water and a pump and store it all in one place, and that place gets hit, and now you have no water. So 5 gallons here, 10 gallons there, 15 gallons there, plus water's heavy. Let's say you have an upstairs bathroom, power's out, You're going to go carry five gallons of water upstairs, or you have a couple gallons in each bedroom closet, and you need a gallon of water, and you just reach out and get it. It's convenient. So at least 50 gallons, 100 is better, stored in one gallon or, or two liter sizes. It's portable. It's durable. It's cheap. Turn the faucet on. Store the water out of your faucet. If you use a Berkey like I do, put it through a Berkey first. Add a water filtration system to your water plant. Okay. Now, as far as flushing our toilets, we're on a septic, personally. So I'm not worried about sewer lines backing up. And I have a pool with over 25,000 gallons of water in it. If our water is off because the well is off for any reason, the pool water is used to flush the toilets. All the stored water is used for things like bathing and cooking and drinking. It's very, very simple. And if you don't have a pool... Look around your neighborhood, see who does. And make sure you're friends with that person because being able to go over there once a day during an outage and take two five-gallon buckets of water out of their pool so you can flush your toilets eliminates one of your other problems unless the sewer lines are backed up, which in most cases they're not. It's not always the case, but in most cases you can still flush your toilet. We'll talk about it if you can't in a little bit. Um, when you come to your shelter... 
Make sure that you have a place to go if your home is compromised. Don't ever end up in a position where, okay, we had a fire, we had a storm, whatever it is. I, I don't know where we're going to go. Have that answer times three before it happens. Friends, relatives, neighbors, what have you. You can only rely on the neighbor so much. If it's a storm, their house might be gone too. If it's a fire, it's a temporary solution. If it's a hotel, it's a very temporary solution. Not a bad thing to have a plan for, though. A few different hotels you have on your cell phone. Speed dial. Because I want you to put yourself in this position as a family leader, man. I just want you to do this. You get a call from your wife. She's frantic. House is on fire. Kids are safe. Everybody's out of the house. Fire department's on scene. The house is going to be a total loss. You have pets. And you've done the research in advance to know a hotel that's relatively local where your pets are welcome. On your way home, you pull out your phone. After you calm your wife down a bit, you make a phone call. You have a credit card, debit card number available so that you can reserve a room. You reserve a room for your house, your family, and your pets. You worry about getting the money back from the insurance company later. And you call your wife and say, get what we do have. Pack up the dogs. Meet me here. We're going to sit down as a family and talk about how we fix this. I'll meet you there. I'm going to the house first, or I'll meet you at the house. But when we're done, when everything's boarded up, because you got to wait. And trust me, if there's a fire at your house and the house is still standing and anything valuable is in there, you got to wait till it's boarded up before you leave because the people they bring in to board your house up will steal your shit. It's happened. We had a guy on the show that told us about it. They'll steal from you at your weakest. But the, the very knowledge that as soon as we deal with this, honey, We're gonna take, we're safe. We're gonna sit down. We're gonna have a meal. A freaking room service. I'm not worried about. It. We've got this planned out and we'll figure out what we're gonna do. How much does that do? How much does that do to convey the most important thing you can convey in a disaster where no one's about to die? It's gonna be okay. We're gonna get through this. To take total panic away. Anything lost, we can replace. And you might inside be going nuts. You have to push that air off. And that one thing. I've already called Tom. He's your brother, for instance. They've already got a place set up for us and the kids. As soon as we're done there, we're going, I don't care where you're going. The fact that there's a place to go. What are we going to, the first thing a person thinks when their whole world is falling down around them and when your home is in flames or the roof is gone, trust me. Your world's falling down around you. Is what are we going to do? What you want is an immediate answer to that question. If you have that, everything else is dealable with. Everything else can be handled. I saw a grown man one time talk about stepping out in front of traffic because he had a friggin' accident that damaged his vehicle And he was so financially stressed at that point, all he could think of was, my insurance is going to go up. He's like, I should just step out in front of the traffic. I grabbed him by the shirt. He said, get your shit together. This is no big deal. 
you know, we got some assistance and got the vehicle towed and got a rental car. And by the way, his insurance didn't even go up. I was kind of surprised at that myself. It didn't go up. But, but if, if that, I mean, no one was hurt. The vehicle wasn't totaled. A bent tie rod, for God's sakes. There wasn't even another vehicle involved. We had a freaking guardrail. This is the mentality some people have. Because they have never even thought about how to deal with the other side of the consequence. One major thing you can think about is if this home is not livable, where are we going to go and have at least three answers to that? The next thing is make sure you can fix basic problems in your home. If it's damaged, but you can stay there. I would always rather stay in my home than go elsewhere. So if there's a big hole in my roof and I can put a tarp on it, And stay in my home, even though some stuff's messed up, I'd rather stay in my home. So have the things you need around. And just think about all the things that go wrong with your house that would make it very inconvenient to live there or impossible to live there that you could do something about just by having materials and knowledge. Moving on to energy. Build a blackout kit. Notice I did not say a bug out kit. A, ba a blackout kit. This is, a, and I suggest two in two totally different parts of the house. And I suggest you get some of the plug-in emergency lights of any kind of your choice and plug them in at various places of your house, especially where that blackout kit is, so you can move toward the light. And in that kit is basic batteries, flashlights, radios, candles, all the stuff that you've decided you want access to if the power goes off first. It's not everything you need. It's everything you need to get to your other stuff. Right, So you don't need your, your log, your fire log, that's going to be used to start a quick fire in the fireplace instead of jacking around with tinder and all the way you usually do. So you have a couple of those, you know, you light a match, paper, fire logs, so you just throw wood on top and do your other shit. Those are a great prep. Right? They're, they're kind of expensive. You're burning one a night, every night, and that's your fire. But having one of those so that when... The power goes off, the house is getting cold, you want to get a fire going, so that doesn't need to be with your blackout kit. But if it's dark when that happens, you need lighting, you need to get the house lit up so you can find your shit. So that blackout kit, that's its primary purpose. It's not all the stuff, it's all the stuff you need to get your other stuff without stubbing your toe, breaking your neck down the stairs, etc. I also suggest that you build at least a basic battery backup system I mean, this can be one marine battery, one inexpensive, intelligent Schumacher charger, and one low-end, like, 800-watt inverter and some DC power. You can put all that together for $150. Bucks. I personally have a four-battery backup system in my closet and a two-battery backup system in my truck. But you don't have to go that far, at least just that little bit. Now I can, if I got that... My cell phones are staying charged just with that. I mean, I can run a couple little strings of LED Christmas lights to be able to see, and I can charge a freaking bat of the phone battery hundreds of times with just that. Now, if I start doing other things with it, I'll wear it out pretty quick. But I can take that inverter or that charger and inverter, I can go out to my car and charge that battery back up using the charger and the inverter. I also take the inverter, put it on my car, and power stuff, little low-draw devices in my home. So that's why I say do that first, and then get a decent little generator. You get like a little Honda EU2000 or something like that, or step up and go out and get like a good Troy-built 6,500, 7,500-watt generator and have gas for it. 
By the way, store gas and rotate it. See, not that I'm, I, no one has had to mortgage the kids yet to do anything I've said. That just got to the most expensive piece. EU2000 Honda generator, they're expensive. Thousand bucks, twelve hundred bucks, something like that. But you know what? You can buy a decent, cheap little generator for two or three hundred dollars. And if that's what you can afford, buy that. The number one prep that's paid off for me has been a generator. Time and time again, it's made my life better. The fact that we had one last year, not last, I guess two years ago at Christmas when we were in Arkansas, my son was there and we got four inches of ice followed by 11 inches of snow. Power was out for a week. And when the neighbors came by to check out if we needed any help, because they were finally able to get down off their part of the mountain, they opened the door and looked in. The Christmas tree was blinking. The TV was on. My son was watching sports. There was a steaming pile of gravy on the table, and we were getting ready to sit down for Christmas dinner 2.0. That's Christmas dinner on the 26th, the next day, when you eat leftovers, and you eat just like you did on Christmas dinner. And they're like, well, I guess you don't need much. And we're like, not, not a lot. The generator is the biggest reason that that was made to hap happen. Um, also think, well, let me cover the gas thing first. Gas is the primary fuel that we use for most things that we do. It is the thing that you probably use every day. And it is the thing that most Americans don't have any on reserve other than one little one gallon or one and a half gallon can for their lawnmower. And it's probably been sitting in there for so long, you wouldn't dare put it in a modern car. And you wonder why your, your lawnmower, when you start it up, goes, bah, 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 right? Okay? Or maybe they have a little bit for a weedy or a chainsaw, and it's got fuel oil mixed in it, and, or not fuel oil, two-cycle oil mixed in, and what have you. And that's it. But you use it every day. Every single day. Number one, the first reserve for your gas is your car. Keep it full. When it says half a tank, fill it up. You're going to do it sooner or later anyway. You might as well do it. You're on the way home. I know it's one more inconvenience, but your car is probably holding from small cars 13 gallons to big trucks 36 gallons or more of fuel. It's a pretty good reserve. The next reserve is fuel in cans. Stephen Harris has talked about storing them in the 15-gallon blue barrels. That makes sense eventually. Here's the easy, slow way to build up 60 gallons of reserve fuel. Go out and buy yourself a big bottle of Stabil. You only use a little bit at a time. It's cheaper in a big bottle. Go out and buy yourself a five-gallon gas can, okay, and a Sharpie marker, and write a big number one on the gas can, on the front, on, on both sides of it, so you can see it, and on the front. So if you're sitting it down in a line, you can see its number, okay? Really simple. Fill that can up with gasoline. Put it somewhere where it's safe to store gasoline. Set it there. Next month, buy one more can. Put your Stabil in it. Write number two on it. All four sides with your Sharpie marker. Put it on the floor next to it. Keep doing that till you get up to no you're writing a number 12. That will mean that the fuel in the first can is a year old. If you can afford to buy two cans a month, go faster. Once you have 12 cans... Or you can start at six if you want to keep your fuel at least six months fresh. Pick up the can that says number one. Put it in your vehicle. Actually dump the gas into your vehicle. And put the empty can in your vehicle. The next time you get gas, put the fuel in your car and fill the can back up. 
take the number one can and put it up to the other side of the number 12 can. So now it goes two through 12 back to one. Next month, number two can, dump it in your vehicle, put the empty can in your vehicle. The next time, you're not buying, after you have 12 cans of gas, if you want to keep 60 gallons in reserve, you're never buying more gas again. The five gallons went in your vehicle. Now, that means your older gas is being diluted by 7 to 30 gallons of other fuel when you're using it in your vehicle. So it's like using fresh fuel, but you have 60 gallons on hand to run your generator, to run vehicles during a disaster, right? I mean, this is simple. I recommend you get some good jerry cans to carry externally, especially if you have trucks, SUVs, racks that can carry them and carry extra fuel with you. But that's a simple thing you can do at home. Make sure you think about where you store that stuff, though. When there's a fire and you got 60 gallons of gas, you're going to have a hell of a fire. So be careful with that much fuel. But I see people all the time talking about storing fuel in like an IBC tote. 100 gallons of fuel sitting there. You can't move it easily. It's not portable. And it's all in one place. Because you could put cans one through three here, cans four, five, and six here, seven, eight, and nine here, 10, 11, and 12 there. And you can still rotate them, right? It's really not that hard. And you can still just keep rotating them. And that way, you don't have 60 gallons in one place. If something happens and you lose it, you haven't lost all of it. And if there is a fire in that one place, you're only fueling it with 15 gallons of fuel versus 60. You see 60 gallons of gasoline go up, it will blow you away with what it could do. So again, really think about that. But you also need to think about staying cool and staying warm. Um, so I believe in having portable heaters. Uh, the best stuff is either the propane heaters like the, uh, the, the buddy heaters. Those are great. You can put a five-gallon can of propane on one of those things, and they run a very long time, or store kerosene and have a kerosene heater or do both. Uh, portable heating saves lives, period. End of story. And running an electric heater off a generator is a very inefficient way to heat. If you have to do it, do it, but it's inefficient. Um, on the other side of that, though, the best way to stay cool when it's really hot is with fans. If you have a big generator, put a window unit in one room, close that door, keep the keep it keep it cool in there. Pick a small room, and that's your place to go sleep and hang out and deal with things. But if you don't have that big generator, It makes a lot of sense to just have fans. And, you know, idling your car for 10 minutes every few hours and an inverter, you can run fans for a daggone long time off of your vehicle. Small generator, that way we know if we deplete a battery, we can dump some energy back into it. We're in good shape. So portable heaters and fans are huge. Um, and both of them can save lives. Next thing, as we move into security, know your neighbors. If you do not know your neighbors on a first-name basis, and I mean all the people around you, like all the people that you can look down and see, you don't know their first name, you are wrong. And you're also at a huge security risk. You have no way to immediately organize your neighbors because they don't know who the hell you are, because you don't know who the hell they are. You don't have trust built up. I'll tell you flatly, 
that unless the person's like tweaking or something, it's like, hey, my name's Steve. <laughs> what, do you, what do you got here? Unless it's that guy, the second you shake somebody's hand and say, hey, I'm Jack, and the guy says, I'm Phil, trust just went up. That doesn't mean you're going to let them into your house with your keys while you're on vacation. Tell them to watch TV and not worry about it. But trust me, you trust a person more when you know their name than when you don't. And insecurity, having others you can trust, is everything. It's time to start building the trust now. If you know your neighbors and you talk to your neighbors, when something ain't right, you tell them and they tell you. Or like happened here a couple weeks ago. Because we know our neighbors, they saw somebody with a flashlight in their backyard. Instead of just worrying about themselves, they were worried about everybody else. The wife immediately texts my wife. I said, you call her and let her know, Joe and I are going out there, don't shoot us. And in about 45 seconds, there was Joe with his shotgun, me with my 45, both with a tack light, Max and Charlie barking, sweeping the whole area, pissed off as hell because they knew something wasn't right. The other neighbor was out with his shotgun. The neighbor that called was out with his AR and his green laser. And whoever it was, probably, we didn't, you know, once everybody came out, we didn't see him. He called ass, apparently, but I guarantee you when that kind of a response occurred, he ain't coming back. You got pit bulls and German shepherds and people with guns and lasers and lights. That is not the place to break into. That's because the neighbors know each other, period. If the neighbors don't know each other, that guy goes out by himself. He's more likely to end up having to shoot the son of a bitch. Okay, Think about that, too. You don't want to shoot anybody unless you absolutely have to. You go out alone, person is more likely to think they can deal with you, they come at you, bang, dirt nap. Hey, in some ways it's justice, but I'd prefer for it not to happen. Lights start coming on everywhere, dogs start barking everywhere, people are everywhere, and you're the bad guy. You're hauling ass. And if you can't haul ass, you're on the ground with your hands like, just don't, don't do it. Don't let the dog bite you. Don't shoot me. Force in numbers. Because you know your freaking neighbors. You don't know your neighbors. That doesn't happen. You're on your own. Number one security thing. Know your neighbors. Practice both situational awareness and OPSEC. Situational awareness. You pay attention to your surroundings. Everywhere you go, every day, it, it's not just because there might be danger. It trains your mind. It's mental conditioning to pay attention to what's going on around you. Right. It also leads to conversations with your neighbors like, hey, I saw this black car drive by slowly three times. Looks kind of weird to me. And your neighbor going, well, we have a sign up for sale and that guy was looking at the house. Oh, okay. Or, no, I saw that guy too. Yeah, I conf- now you got confirmation. Something's up. Now everybody's telling everybody, let's look for this car. And when you have people like when that car drives by slow and everybody's walking toward their, their front yard, like what's going on, that guy's not coming back. He's going somewhere to a softer target. That's situational awareness. Operational security, OPSEC. Now, this is where some preppers go nuts. I don't want anybody to know I prep, and I'm going to be in my bunker all by myself, and you're going to be dead, by the way. But we'll just let that go, right? OPSEC is not running your mouth about all of your capabilities and everything you have. And OPSEC is far less about your preps and far more about your wealth and your vulnerabilities. Don't be telling people your freaking net worth. right? OPSEC is not wearing really expensive-looking jewelry when you're pumping gas in a less-than-desirable neighborhood. If I was wearing, let's say, a gold watch, a nice gold watch, and a nice ring, and I was dressed really, really nice... And I had, I always have like a coat 
like just a winter coat or like a sweatshirt or something like that in my car, you know. And I realized, like, I got to get off and get gas here for whatever reason. I didn't get gas when I should have, and I got to get gas at this gas station. And I look around, and I just go, this looks like a little bit of a higher crime area. I'm going to take my watch off. I'm going to drop it on my console, right? I'm going to take anything that looks real valuable off. Maybe I throw that coat on. It's not quite obvious that I'm coming from a business meeting, and I'm dressed in a $300 freaking suit, some of you guys, right? I'm going to pump my freaking gas. I'm going to pay at the pump with a credit card. I'm going to leave my wallet in the car. I'm going to take a credit card or debit card with me. And if you want to steal that, here you go, take it. I'll just cancel it before you're down the road. I'm going to pay for, at the pump. I'm going to put the pump in. I'm going to turn the pump on automatic. I'm going to reach back in the car, put that card away. I'm going to stand there like I am paying attention to what's going on. When the pump clicks off, I'm not going to dick around with it trying to get those last three drops in like I do in a normal day. I'm going to put the freaking pump up. I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to leave. Because I'm afraid? No, because I'm not a, I'm not a freaking moron. All right? Operational security and situational awareness. The cost of those are nothing. The cost of not practicing them can be your life. Let me say that again. The cost of doing them is zero. The cost of not doing them can be your life. The life of someone you care about. Or your safety, security, and your future capabilities. Because it could result in, let's say, you not being beat to death, but beaten until you're paralyzed, and now your wife has to wipe your ass for you because you didn't pay attention. Do I have your attention now? Sometimes I know I get a little over the top, but this is the truth. I get grown men pumping freaking gas with, with, with freaking rap music playing, bebopping around while they're looking up sports scores on their freaking iPhone in a neighborhood where you stand out like a sore thumb. Real smart. Real smart. I saw one guy at a bar with a bunch of other college kids getting freaking drunk, and one guy says to the other guy, who carries a gun in a day like today? Or something like that, you know, in modern times or whatever. And the guy that he was talking to points his finger at himself like this, and now I look at the fool, and he's printing about as big as he can off his back, and he just advertised everybody he's carrying a gun, and he's drunk. So... I was, you guys, you guys know Brian from ITS. Like, he, he, his wife was there with, with myself and, and my wife. We kept an eye on those guys for the rest of the night. We immediately formulated a plan. If this guy did something stupid with his gun, this is how we're going to deal with it. And we're also thinking, okay, if we were bad guys and I'm not armed and I need a gun, all I'm doing is waiting for this fool to walk out the door, take a left into the dark side, and boom, he's taken out. I've got his gun. And I know all his buddies aren't armed because all his buddies are like in awe that this guy has a gun. That's not OPSEC. You don't do stupid shit like that. That's how you get killed. That's how you get your friends killed. That's how you get beaten. You think smart about your operational security. It's not about hiding the fact that you have an MRE. That is not OPSEC. That is paranoia. Not broadcasting to the world who you are, what you do, and putting yourself into vulnerable situations that don't have to be, or not taking considerations when you do have to be in a vulnerable situation, that's not having operational security. I also say get firearms training and have a means of defense for everyone in the family. 
If you got a family member that doesn't want a gun, doesn't touch a gun, you don't trust with a gun, not ready for a gun, you don't think we'll use a gun, pepper spray, pepper spray, pepper spray, pepper spray. Better than anything else. Because they'll use it, they'll do it, it's cheap, and I'll tell you what you do. You get yourself some Velcro. You put it on the can and you put it on a surface. And you have pepper spray under your kitchen table. You have it behind the curtains by your door. You have it up underneath the, 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 the coat rack or whatever, or your little stand or table out in the front. You have it underneath the night thing. You have it underneath the bed. You have it underneath the kid's bed. You have it behind the bookshelf. And once a year, you go through and throw all that shit away and buy new pepper spray. And if somebody breaks in your house and, and if they ain't got a gun and they're trying to subdue a member of your family, they're going to all know Grab, point, spray. And I'll tell you what, I don't want to hear from one person about the guy that you knew in special operations who used to put pepper spray on his MRE. I put habanero sauce on my fajitas, but I don't put it in my eyes. And you're not worried about the one in 1,000 person that can fight through it. You're worried about the 999,000 that can't. Doesn't mean you count on it. That's why you get a gun. Last time I checked, you put three holes in a guy's chest, it gets his attention. But that's even, see the ones that like poo poo pepper spray and say gun's the only option. There's been guys keyed up on dope. One guy I read a story about four shots from a 357 Magnum in the chest, still got to the guy, still nearly beat him to death and then fell over dead on top of him. It worked eventually. There was another guy, this guy was kind of a martial arts guy, weightlifter guy, the guy held him up shot him in the chest with a .357 Magnum. The guy grabbed the gun out of his hand, smacked the guy in the face with it, beat the shit out of him, dialed 911, and when he dialed 911, they said, well, he was shot in the chest. This is back in the 80s. And they said they're, they're en route, and he said, well, this guy will probably be laying here. I'm going to the hospital. He drove himself to the hospital. Don't bet on it. He lived. So all we can do with defense is make sure we have options. A pepper spray, firearm, basic, basic martial arts training, operational security, and procedures. There's certain times you put procedures in place, right? And have those figured out. Have procedures. And what I mean by that is when something's wrong and your wife calls you, say, you do this, and they know what that means. Lock all the doors. Call Bob the neighbor. Get the kids all out of, all indoors, whatever it is. She knows how to gun, use a gun, go get the gun. We're going to stay in communications till I get there. If there's something really going on, we're calling the police. Police are on their way. We're going to stay in three-way communications, me, you, and 911. And when the police are there and we know they're on site and they're outside the front door, we're going to put the gun away. So the police don't freak out. And the police are going to know that you're armed. And we're going to all talk. That has that conversation has to happen now. Not in the middle of this shit when your wife's freaking out. Or when your husband's freaking out. Or when your teenage daughter's freaking out. you got to know, based on who the most competent individual is in your home at any one time, that there's a crisis and a threat. What is the procedure to mitigate the threat? It's not just call 911. They'll get there just in time to write a report about how you got killed or raped if you rely on just 911. Unless you're lucky as shit and the guy just happens to be driving by your house when he gets the call and then maybe he'll be there in time. 
Not because he doesn't want to be there in time, because logistically it's not possible. There are other people other than you that authorities are helping, whether we realize that or not, in our arrogance. On the note on procedures, this is more about communication now at this point. There might be times where you need to get out of your house because of a threat from a person or like there's a fire or whatever reason everybody needs the 8060AO. It means get out of the area of operations. So there should be, and this is a basic preparedness thing that everybody's told to do all the way back to the time you're little kids that most families have never done. Have, if we all have to get out of the house, this is where we all go meet with each other. And let me tell you where it's not. It's not the front yard. Do you know why it's not the front yard? If there's a freaking fire in your house, front yard's not exactly safe. It's two houses over in their front yard for a fire. It might be further if the threat is there's somebody trying to get into the house and we know they're in the front and we've gone out the back. We should be all doing that together. But we should have rally points, assembly points. And we need that not just for getting out of the house, but meeting up if there's a disaster and we can't go home. And we all are heading to Aunt Edna's. But mom's at work, she's going to pick up one kid from one school. Dad's at work, he's going to pick up another kid from the other school. We're not all going all the way to Aunt Edna's before we sync up. We have a place in route to rally. And we have a way to tell somebody if we're, to, if there's a major disaster going on, you might sit there and wait. Communications might not be up. You may not be able to talk to mom. So you have something that's in your trunk that looks like junk that you would leave in a prominent area. That when she gets there, that means I'm already, I've already been here. They made me leave. Go to the next rally point. Have these points picked out in advance. Cost free. We use a Pringles can taped up a certain way. It's thrown in a trunk. It's always there. Forget all about it. If you ever need it, it's there. Right? It serves multiple purposes, by the way. It's a container. That's ours. I haven't given away my OPSEC. The odds that you're going to find that something out because you see a Pringles can a certain way for me is nothing. I don't care what it is. As long as it's something that most people would just see as garbage and junk and leave it there. It's okay to litter in that situation. If everything gets better and you want to feel good about yourself, you know, the person behind you can pick it up and take it with them. And you have it to use it again. Okay? As long as it's safe to do so. Real, real simple. Um, Also consider this. Every family member should have the info of every other family member, extended and immediate. You should have your you know, Aunt, Aunt Dorothy's phone number and, and Cousin Mick's phone. Anybody that you would reach out to should be in the possession of everybody. Because it might be that a person can only get in touch for some reason with one person on that list. That's the only person they can get through to. Communications might be down more than just for you. But someone was able to get through to Cousin Mick. Now, Dad's freaking out because he's wondering where daughter is. He starts going down a list. If, if she can get to Cousin Mick, odds are that he can get to Cousin Mick. And Cousin Mick is now the vector of information between the two. Or Cousin Mick's able to talk to, uh, to, to, to you know, Dad's brother, Tim. So Dad gets through to Tim, and he says, hey, look, I, I talked to Mick, and your girl's okay. She's on her way to my place right now. Great. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Now I can focus on all the other shit going on in the middle of a disaster. I know this one person is safe. 
So all contact information, and that does not mean just in your smartphone. Write it down. Put it in your documentation package. Your documentation have more than that, but have at least that. A book. We still do have books. Write all this information down. One in every glove box of the car. Put one in every glove box, make a copy, put it in the trunk. Why? You have to split up. Here, take a copy of this. Done. Your phone should always work, but it doesn't always work. So make sure you have a backup for that. Every family member, everybody else's information. Uh, definitely have basic radios. Radios in your vehicle are not portable. So like Stephen Harris just said, we did a radio show, a little transistor AM, FM radio that runs on AA batteries. Fifteen bucks. Extremely valuable information. Comes across radio in a downtime. Consider two-way radios. We got the Motorola ones that uh, Stephen recommended. We're pretty happy with them. They certainly cover our whole um, our whole property and down the road a, a good mile. Uh, you might want to kind of store a bit more of those if you have if you do know your neighbors. During a disaster, if you have eight, ten of those things charged up, being able to go to each neighbor and go here, we're on frequency X, privacy code Y. It's already set. By the way, it's set for weather alert, so you'll know that. Keep it on when you need it charged. Here's the charger. Do you have a way to charge? Do you have power? You don't? Okay, fine. Bring it back to the house. We'll hang out for a little bit. We'll get it charged up for you. Now we have communications through the neighborhood. I don't have to go out and tell everybody that in advance. I just have to know them and be able to go here. You push the button to talk. You listen. If you have some people you really kind of hit it off with, you might want to talk about some procedures in advance during that time extremely, extremely valuable that the neighborhood can communicate with each other. And they're not all going to get ham radios, hams. They're not. They're not, they're not, they're not, they're not. And they're not all going to have CBs either. And if somebody's more than a mile away, you're probably not depending on them right now. And that's what cell phones are for, and they do work in most instances. At least the text feature works. Everybody should know how to text. Some people don't. You should know how to text. Have a way to deal with your waste. We're getting into health and sanitation now. The easiest, cheapest, surefire way to deal with waste, if you can't flush your toilets, as yucky as it sounds, go to Walmart, get a great big bottle of the blue stuff for RVs and portajons. Okay? Get a five-gallon bucket, cheap toilet seat, and a package of garbage bags. And every time somebody goes poo, dump some blue stuff in. When the bag's pretty full, tie a knot in it, put it somewhere. Hopefully out on the curb. Hopefully the garbage trucks are still running. If not, you might have to figure out something else. Yes, it would be great if everybody had an outhouse and could poop in the ground and a composting toilet and on and on and on. But we're talking about cheap, effective, expedient, reliable, now, today, to deal with that. No one wants to have this conversation. Nobody wants to talk about somebody else pooping. It's, it's, it is not good dinner conversation. I'll admit it. If you listen to me at dinner, I'm sorry. It's very important. People die in disasters because of poop. Okay? It is that serious. The number one cause of death in disaster aftermath, in large-scale disasters, is diarrhea. The number one reason is because of contaminated water. The number one reason the water is contaminated is human waste. So there you go. That's the easiest way to deal with it. 
what if the zombies march and I have to deal with it? Then you're going to have to find another way to deal with it. But if you can't flush the toilet for a week, you'll be a lot more comfortable. It'll save lives. You might want to think about getting one of those little tents that are designed to go around a portage on to set up in the backyard because I don't want that bucket in my house unless it has to be. But my wife doesn't want, well, then your wife can hold it. Just saying. It's that simple. And a little portage on is not a bad idea, but the reality is you got to get rid of that stuff. Okay? And you can only use it so much. And the bucket and bag technique, you tie a knot in it, you have lots of bags, you put that bag in another bag and tie a knot in it, it's not going to stink. It's a simple thing. It saves lives and improves life quality during a disaster. Um, also think about your other wastes. It's amazing how much garbage people produce. Um, have a good medical kit, not a first aid kit. I'm not saying it's not really a first aid kit. I'm saying not a first aid kit you buy in a store. But have a good medical kit. Um, tomorrow I'm going to have Doc Bones and Nurse Amy on. They have ex extensively awesome medical kits available for you guys. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow, so I'll skip it today because we are going long at this point. Um, but definitely have a good set of everything you need for basic aid when there is no doctor available. Stomach aches, flus, headaches, back aches, cuts, bruises, injuries. I mean, Dave Canterbury is fond of saying his, his, his first aid kit when he goes to the woods is a, is a cloth and duct tape. And if you can't fix it with cloth and duct tape, you need a helicopter. That's oversimplifying it, but there is truth in it. Most things can be fixed with compression, bandages, and ways to clean a wound, and ways to treat aches and pains, chills, basic stuff, guys. If you come down with the flu during a disaster where you just can't fire up the car and run off, it's not really that big a deal, but all of a sudden you've come up with the flu. Oh, and by the way, you have the craps from it. That med kit... And a way to deal with the craps, bucket, blue stuff, lots of blue stuff now, right? There's a difference between being completely miserable and being unhappy. And a lot of times what we're doing is really about that. It's not just about, you know, having a situation where we're saving our life. It's just improving the quality of our life during a disaster. It's about taking a disaster to the level of an inconvenience and an inconvenience to the level of a minor inconvenience and making a minor inconvenience irrelevant. That's what we're trying to do in most of these situations. So it's definitely necessary to have a good way to deal with waste and a good medical kit. And then part of your medical kit and then just part of your, your preparedness for health anyway should be maintenance medications. And I'm not going to say much on that, just if you are on medications for maintenance, specifically that are uh, necessary to your well-being long-term, they're not just a, a, a thing that if you have to go without it for a month, you're not going to die or get really sick or anything, but stuff that you really need and you don't have at least 90 days in reserve, you're making a huge mistake. That should always be there. And however you have to go about uh, staging things or taking things out over time to get that reserve put away, do it. I'm not going to even speak to insulin-dependent diabetics because you guys know. Uh, but any maintenance medication that you're on, you should have 
to me, minimum 90 days in reserve. Talk to your doctor about that. Explain your concerns. And uh, if you have a doctor that's not willing to work with you on that, then find a new doctor. Because basically you have a doctor that says, I want you dependent on my prescription pad even in a disaster where I'm not available. Because that's how I feel about that. Now, I understand that like pain medicines and things like that, narcotics, they, there would be apprehension in doing that. But I don't really know anybody that should be on that type of medication as a maintenance medication. If you're on a maintenance of high-level narcotic painkillers, uh, you've got a problem, and you need to figure out what your problem is. Because if you're in that much chronic pain, there's probably another way to address it, and you probably need to be talking to somebody other than a conventional doctor. And though I'll piss some of the purists off in the world of, we have to legislate other people's morality there is a case in certain chronic pain situations to be made heavily for medical marijuana. I'll just leave it at that because um, that is absolutely factual. Whether people want to accept that or not, I, I, I really am not interested in whether you accept it. I just like you saying the sky's blue and you say, no, it's not. Okay, fine. We're not going to argue it. Um, the next thing, though, is just overall take care of yourself. Get up off your ass, take a walk a couple times a day. Um, physically and emotionally, Exercise and take care of yourself. If you're on a chronic, uh, if you're on a maintenance medication, and it's something that there's any way that you can improve your health to where you don't need it anymore, get off of it now. Period. I mean, just like and think, please think before you go on maintenance medications. Before you say yes when your doctor whips out the prescription pad for any new prescription, when will I stop taking this? And that the answer is never. Really think before you do it. I had a doctor tell my wife she needed high blood pressure medication, just a little bit, just a little bit. Because her eye doctor noticed in her eyes some of her blood vessels that looked like her blood pressure had been really high. So now she's freaked out. She goes to the eye, uh, the doctor, and the doctor says, like, you're a tick. The eye doctor, who I really want to just jack up, man, just a, just a stupid thing to say to somebody, says what? You're a ticking time bomb. No justification at all. Apparently what had happened is at some point, for some reason, her blood pressure had spiked. She goes and sees the doctor. Her blood pressure is slightly elevated. Well, she's freaked the hell out, which will up your blood pressure. I guarantee you, with what I just said there, and I'm angry, my blood pressure just went up. All right? doesn't mean that I have high blood pressure. It means that I had for a time high blood pressure. So this doctor sits her down and says, listen, I understand your concern, but if you were my mother, I would tell you this. And my wife came home and told me that. And I said, you know what? That doesn't mean she's right. That just means it's her true opinion and she's being honest. So she went back to her doctor and said, what I'd like to do is monitor my blood pressure for 60 days. And then we can make a decision. And the doctor said, okay, but I don't think that will be useful. So she monitored her blood pressure for 60 days. And when she went back, with, she took like three, four times a day, took her blood pressure, wrote her blood pressure down, and took all the readings back to the doctor. The doctor went, well, I don't think you really need medication. But she never said, and this is why I get pissed off at doctors, I was wrong. I was mistaken. Maybe I should do this with my other patients before I just immediately put them on maintenance meds. So please, when it comes to taking care of yourself, also understand that your doctor's not always right. It, it never hurts to get a second opinion. And I'm not saying that some people don't need these meds. In fact, I'm telling you if you need them to have them. But I'm saying really think before you get on a lot of this stuff. And if you're not going to die next week, 
then try diet, exercise, and, and other natural, gentle, non-harm remedies before you go on. Because many of these, these drugs, the truth is, whether the underlying condition required them or not, once you're on them, it's difficult and in some cases almost impossible to successfully get back off of them. This is especially true with things like S-serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the mental drugs, right? I can't think clearly. Here, take this. You're on it for the rest of your life. If your kid doesn't sit still in school, he doesn't need meth, which is what Ritalin and its other versions are. He needs exercise. He needs an outlet for his activity. So yourself and your family, take care of yourself physically and emotionally. Exercise mentally. The, the, the situational awareness thing is a great mental exercise. One of the things that we do is we're driving somewhere, and especially someplace we've been a lot of times. We'll, we'll both say, well, we'll both try to pick out one or two things we never noticed before. A certain car, a certain tree, whatever, and we'll just talk about it when we get where we're going. What did you, some of you saw the same thing. This makes the mind work. Do Sudoku or crossword puzzles or something like that. Engage the mind. Engage the mind. Walk through scenarios. What would I do if? Scenarios. This is two things. One, as long as the mind's working, it's developing. Your mind will never develop the way it did when you were a kid, unless you still are a kid. Um, the, the ability for us to develop the synapses, the connections in the brain, is highest in childhood. And it declines over time. It's why we become stuck in our ways. As older people, we're both wise and stubborn. It's a counterbalance, right? So we need to keep working, though, because we can still develop synapses, even if not as quickly. As long as the mind is working on anything, you're continuing to learn and evolve. Um, moving on to money. Number one, save money and get out of debt. If you email me and say, Jack, I have about $2,000, and I want to know how to invest it. Unless it's like, well, I have $2,000 of discretionary income. Oh, okay. Like I have like all this other my money invested. I have savings, and I've just got like a two thousand dollar windfall. And and based on my portfolio, where would I put it? I'd say talk to your financial advisor or listen to my stuff and figure it out for yourself. Because I don't give financial advice, but I mean, oh, there's something to do with that. But if all the money in the world that you have is two thousand dollars beyond your paycheck that pays your bills every week, and you want to know what to do with it, keep it in cash. Put it in a savings account. Money, cash. But when hyperinflation comes, if all you got is two grand, you are screwed anyway. Keep it in cash. You'll probably need it next month when something breaks in your car. If you turned it into silver, it will cost you money to extract it. Save money, eliminate debt. I'll leave it at that. I've done whole shows on this. Know your investments and practice real diversity. When your financial liar, I mean advisor, I mean liar, says to you that you have a diverse portfolio because you're invested in four different kinds of mutual funds, you do not have a diverse portfolio. You have a uniform portfolio. You are invested in all stocks. That's where you have one investment, stocks. And let me tell you something about diversity between mid-cap, small-cap, growth and in income, etc. In general, when the whole market shits the bed, they all go down. You've not even diversified within the asset class. So make sure you're practicing true diversity with your investments. Not just your financial investments, but your overall investments. Good tools are a good investment. Knowledge is a good investment. Building your own business is a good investment. Building a small micro home-based business as a secondary income stream is a good investment. 
right? I mean, your preps, if done properly instead of wastefully, are good investments. If you're buying food today that you're going to eat tomorrow, odds are it would cost you more money tomorrow, so you've done a capital deferral. Practice true diversity with your investments. I believe there should be some silver and gold in your portfolio, no doubt. But it's long after your entire savings is $2,000. I've had people, I, I, I'm cashing out a 401k. Let me get $2,000 out of it, and I need to know where to put it in. Leave it in the 401k, dummy. But the government might steal it someday. Yes, and it's only $2,000. I'm not stealing it now. Leave it alone. Don't cost yourself money. You know, I'm leaving my job. Roll it into an IRA. What do I put it in? It's $2,000. It doesn't even matter. Let me put it this way. Until you have about $10,000 in savings, be conservative with it. Cash, cash equivalents. You could put it into an investment, like a mutual fund or something, if you're doing a 401k, automatic withdrawals, what have you. But be conservative. You don't have much to gain, but you have a lot to lose. That's one way to look at it. All right. Um, but know your investments. Never say, I have a guy that takes care of that and tells me what to buy and sell. At least know what you have, how much of it, and pay attention to what's going on. Um, the next thing is have good insurance. Insure anything that would be a major loss in your life. Your car, your home. If you have a business and you have this guy, this one guy who is like critical to your business, especially if it's not you. You need something called key man insurance and talk to an insurance agent about that. If you're insuring your business and you have this insurance agent who's taking care of your car, your house, and stuff like that, your life, and he doesn't specialize in business insurances, don't feel obligated to use him. Get someone who specializes in business insurance. Well, I can sell you that. Well, I can sell you a lot of things. I can sell you a horse, but I don't know Jack Diddley about horses, guys. I really don't. So you shouldn't buy a horse for me unless you know more than me. And then I'm just a conduit, and that's fine. But you shouldn't come to me as a salesperson that says, I can sell anything, including a horse, and I'll and say, well, Jack, what kind of horse should I get? And I go, here at Clydesdale, here you go. Well, I wanted to run in the Kentucky Derby. Oh, I don't care, this will work. I mean, that's how some insurance guys are. I'm sorry, but they are. Um, they don't intend to be, but they just, if they don't specialize in in business insurance, They don't really understand the risks that go along with running a business. Um, I also want you to, like, just overall, as a mental preparedness issue and as a financial preparedness issue and as a physical preparedness issue and as a mental exercise, I want you to think about what I called or what I, what I talked about earlier with this recovery risk. What is your risk of not recovering, not fully recovering, Or not recovering in a, re a reasonable time frame from any disaster. So you have to think about how would you cope with a minor loss. To me, a minor loss, you're sitting in your house one night and you hear, <coughs> and you go look outside, some guy drunk in a truck came around the corner, failed to negotiate the turn, which is the technical way of saying lost control of his vehicle because he was a dumbass, slams into your car, totals your car. That sounds like a pretty big thing. It's not. Hopefully your car is insured. Hopefully the drunk's insured. Nobody's dead. Um, you can rent a car in five seconds all over the phone. Hey, Alamo, uh, National, Avis, whatever. Here's a, 
credit card number or debit card number and I need to rent a car and have somebody take you over and pick it up, you probably have two cars. Um, it's a minor loss. But how would you cope with it? How would you cope with it? If you have a two-income family and, and mom works part-time and makes $1,000 a month after it's all said and done with and she loses her job, it's a minor loss. It's not good, but it's, how would you cope with a minor loss? Think as many losses that you can come up with, write them down on a piece of paper, that you would call minor, and just say to yourself, how would I deal with these? What would I do? Then think of a major loss. A major loss is one of the two members of the primary breadwinners of the family stricken with cancer dies. Stricken with cancer spends a year in the hospital, beats it, But the life is just totally disrupted of everybody and, and hardship and agony and angst. And even though you've beat it with cancer, you never know. That's a major loss to me, even though the person made it through. It's, I don't think it's as major. Um, dad is the sole breadwinner of the household. Dad knocks back $150,000 a year. And dad gets his walking papers from work. And unemployment's $400 a week. And can't find a job for a year. That's a major loss. That's 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 a major loss. Um, you hunker in place during a storm, and not every tiny bit of the house is gone, but the roof's off the house. Cars are destroyed. A lot of your stuff is ruined. It's a major loss. How would you and, and come up with as many major losses? And you don't have to have my, you know, you don't have to delineate where I say, to you it's major, to me it's minor, to me it's minor, to you it's major, whatever. And, and, and how would you deal with those? And then think total loss. To me, if your house burns down and everything in it, that's a total loss. That is a total, total loss. To me, really, if one of, one of the parents in a relationship dies, it's a total loss because they're gone. So, How that works out. Um, if there is the end of the world as we know it, in any one of the scenarios that it can come out, and the whole nation is taken to the brink of, of just barely getting by, that's a total loss. Total loss is when you really don't know what you're going to do. And it's hard to think about. But I think it's worth categorizing things as major, minor, and total losses. And asking yourself, what would I do? And not being afraid. Not being afraid, realizing that there's always an answer to what would I do. And I'll tell you that the more you've gamed that in your head, the more resilient you'll be in any catastrophe. The more the mind will immediately switch on. Because what you want to ask yourself is, what are my tools? What do I have as a resource? How can I make this work? Um, moving on to transportation, we talked about. Keep your vehicle maintained. Change your freaking oil. Keep good tires on your vehicle. When you get to a point where your belts are getting a little bit worn, spend the money and replace them. Um, if you know how to do your own work, even if you choose not to, for time expediency, and let's say you've just decided to have all your, your hoses and belts replaced on your car, well, if the other ones were still functional, Don't have them thrown away. You even have your mechanic just say, keep those, I want them. They're, they're a backup. They're two is one, one is none. Because there's vehicles, you have one belt. 
one serpentine belt, and it flies off because it breaks. And guess what? Your vehicle's not moving. Oh, and think about this. Let's say there's a disaster, and I'm a nefarious character. I'm a bad guy. And uh, I'm going to steal from you. I am going to steal. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to target you. I've determined for one reason or another you have stuff I want, and I want to immobilize you. And your vehicle is parked in a driveway. could flatten your tires, but you might notice that before I'm done what I'm doing. But if I slide up underneath your car with a knife and cut your belt off, the car's not going anywhere. There's a lot of other ways I can do that. That's an easy one. So spare parts, always a good idea. Always a good idea. From a, It just broke to somebody sabotaged it. Uh, to somebody cannibalized it because they didn't have the part you did. It's also a, a really good reason in any kind of heightened security issue to move your vehicles either into a garage if you don't normally keep them there or if you can get them into a backyard or something like that, get them off the street. I don't have a problem with people who park their car in their driveway. I'm not a member of a blue-haired lady in an HOA that goes, he has his truck out where people can see it. Don't live where she's at. But, you know, in those type of scenarios, getting your vehicles off the road, unless you're running it because you're running an inverter to power your house, don't put that in your garage, you'll kill yourself. Have a basic working knowledge of uh, vehicles. If you check into local colleges, you'll probably find plenty of CEU, Continuing Education, Uh, courses where they have like basic auto maintenance and things like that. Taking a couple of those courses is not a bad idea. So you just understand the basics of how a motor works if you don't know. Um, again, have those simple extra parts on hand. Have tools. Um, I can look at your vehicle and I can go, starter's bad. And you can go, well, you know what? I have a starter motor. Or there's a starter motor on that busted old vehicle over there that matches or whatever. Okay, fix it. Okay, I need sockets, wrench, screwdriver, probably a jack to get your vehicle up so I can fit under the damn thing so I can get access to the starter because I probably can't do it from above. If I don't have that stuff, even though I have the starter, I can't fix it. There's probably some way I could jerry-rig the damn thing to get it to start, but I need tools. Good set of hand tools. Invaluable. Invaluable from a mobility standpoint. Um, plan to take extra fuel with you. Even if you don't drive around with extra fuel, and not everybody should. There used to be a time when I advised that, but really the more I think about it, the more that can be more a hindrance than a help in some situations. But if you really have to go long distance, get the hell out of Dodge, and people are going to be breaking down and stuff, have some kind of plan to take at least a couple jerry cans of fuel with you externally on your vehicle. I don't care if you have to strap it to the freaking, use a ratchet strap and strap it to the, the top of a trunk if you don't have a truck. Uh, definitely you want extra fuel with you. And if you have extra fuel, then when you do get opportunities to fuel up, you can dump that fuel into your vehicle and you can get more fuel than you would have if you were just topping up your tank. Um, at least 10 gallons. Have multiple routes planned and documentation for evacuation. Get on, I mean, this is another one. Like, like Half of the stuff I've given you today doesn't actually cost money. It just takes time, a little bit of effort, and a little bit of acquired knowledge. Get on Google Maps, figure out where you would go in a disaster if you had to leave, and then start using the directions feature and find yourself three places to go and three different ways to get to each place. Print out the maps and a set of directions, 
and and put it in a little binder and stick it in every vehicle that you guys own and have a couple extra sets of them, one at the house, you know, one in your bug out bag, and have that knowledge already ready to go and occasionally look at it. And you know what? If you happen to be going to a town that might be where you would go and there's the most expedient way to get there and you have a little extra time and you've planned a redundancy route that's not the most expedient way because it might be cut off, take the, take the scenic route, so to speak. And examine it. Because just because you printed it off in a map doesn't mean you really understand it. And say to yourself, what are my resources along the way? Free. Okay, if you're going there anyway and you go the long way, you might spend an extra five bucks, ten bucks in gas. Not totally free. Pretty damn close. As close as it gets. Um, in the end, understand the stuff that I've talked about with you today makes you more prepared than 99% of Americans. And if there were times when you thought I was yelling at you or being a little bit upset or, or what have, it, have you today, um, please don't feel that way. I, I do get angry when I think about the fact that 99% of Americans haven't thought about any of this other than maybe a little bit of investing and a little bit with insurance. You know, I mean, it's just, it's mind-numbing to me that in arguably, in some ways, the greatest nation that's ever existed And I've had my disagreements with people about that claim. But in some ways, it's true. Certainly, no nation has ever existed with as much wealth and opportunity to be prepared if that goes away than America. There's never been a time or place where people had more ability for so little investment to be prepared for hard times than right here, right now. And when I think about the fact that 99 out of 100 people won't do anything. And then I think about the very real possibility that because of this, people will be hurt and or killed. Yes, it makes me angry. It's why I have so much passion for what I do at the Survival Podcast. When I talk to people, they're like, oh, I'm not worried about it. I'm like, what is wrong with you? And if they're single, I don't really care. But I love the people. I love my kids so much I would die to protect them. Well, Would you live for them? Will you survive for them? Will you think about what they need before they need it so that it'll be there for them when they want it? Will you? I know most of you will. If those of you out there have friends you've been trying to wake up, maybe this is a good one to share with them. Tell them to start after the intro period and all. I mean, it, it comes down to this. I want you to have a goal larger than yourself. I want you to think past your own skin to others. I want you to think beyond even your own family to your neighborhood, your community. And even in some ways, I want you to think about people all over the world. And when you can help somebody, I want you to. And I want other people to do that. And there are people that will step out of their, out of themselves to help you. There's lots of them. If, if people in general were not willing to help each other, the human race would have been wiped off the face of the earth a long time ago. There would be nobody left. But in the end, it's still the case. No one cares about you and your family more than you do. I care about you, or I wouldn't do this show every day. I wouldn't have dedicated my life to teaching these concepts. 
but I care about me and my wife more than I care about you. And I will say that and I will not apologize for it. I'm just simply being honest. And you care about yourself and your spouse and your kids more than me. And if you can't say that, you're just not ready to be honest about it yet. Somebody has convinced you that makes you bad or wrong in some way. That every person out there is supposed to be selfless. They're not. They're not going to be. We're not wired to be having the 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 understanding to put yourself and your family first especially in a disaster does it make you bad it makes you human and by doing so you can then help others but if you won't if you won't care enough to be prepared who will i think that's the one thing that preppers are trying to tell the average American. If you don't care enough about your family, your children, your wife, and your neighbors to do these simple things so that you can look after each other and yourselves during a disaster, who do you expect to do it? The government? And in many ways, they'll do their best. And their best in some instances is shit. And their best in many instances might be pretty good, but you might wait a day or two or four or seven for them to show up. And how long does it take to take a human life? Less than that. Less than the snap of a finger to take a human life. Whether by intent or accident. The actual moment that someone is some way injured that results in their death, even if they don't die immediately, the actual moment is a nanosecond. The nanosecond that a person's hit by a car because they weren't paying attention. The nanosecond that the blade of a knife goes into somebody's ribs while they're being robbed. And those of you who have experienced even the loss of a pet know that when it's over, it's over. And there's no changing it. And sometimes that nanosecond is a person being crippled, paralyzed brain injury. There's so many ways. We are fragile beings, you and I. And you can't prepare for everything, but you can prepare for many things. And you'll find out that these actions are not taken by people who are afraid. People are afraid. Don't take these actions. That may seem counterintuitive, but those who are in fear are paralyzed. And those who live in fear cannot face danger. They cannot examine danger. They cannot comprehend danger. They just want to ignore it. They want to put their hands over their heads and say, shut up, leave me alone, go away. I live in a, a gated community. I'm fine. Nothing will ever happen here. Bullshit. Hopefully nothing will ever happen there, but doesn't mean it can't. People that are emboldened, people with power, look at risk. They face it willingly. They accept it as possible, and they plan, because, not because they are afraid, but they plan because they know their own power. Know yours. Get this stuff done. And continue to spread the word of preparedness. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Revolution is you. 